Hello and welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. You know, certain performers and entertainers exhibit a life force that seems to extend well beyond their years on our planet. Today's subject is one such luminary. Hailing from the rough and tumble streets of Boston, he went on to star in perhaps the most watched and most iconic film of all time. And he lived an amazing life, bringing joy to millions on stage, film, and television. I'm referring to the inimitable Ray Bolger, subject of a great new biography called Ray Bolger, More Than a Scarecrow, by today's guest, Holly Van Leeuwen. First question for my lovely guest, Holly Van Leeuwen, is this. Why Ray Bolger? What was this personal mission of yours, a young lady of your composure, to come up with this as a subject? That's a wonderful question. I think maybe the choice was Ray Bolter because he presented the most interesting challenge. I don't know. In hindsight, that might be true. But I have been interested in musicals and even just classic films since I was quite young in my teens. And even before that, with my exposure, like everybody else, I've seen The Wizard of Oz so many times that I couldn't even tell you the first time that I saw the film. But I was always interested in learning about the production of that film in particular. That kind of became my gateway into learning more about film history in general. And so Mm. I was interested in the effects and the costuming and the cast changes. And that was all very well and good, but you exhaust that pool after a while. And so my natural next progression was actually through the films of Judy Garland. And working my way through those, I actually made it to her television show in the 1960s. I acquired episodes of that when I was a teenager. And the one that really stuck with me was her episode with Ray Bolger, because here was the first time I was seeing Ray Bolger in street clothes, interacting with Garland as they were friends. And he just struck me as a very kind and caring person. He definitely had that star power that the old timers refer to. And he was a beautiful dancer. He did a lovely tap dance number for her to On the Sunny Side of the Street. And I went looking for more information about Ray Bolger, but I couldn't find anything. There was no book the way that other cast members of The Wizard of Oz had books. And even the amount of information available online wasn't very much, and it wasn't very high quality. There's a persistent rumor, if you Google around, you'll still find it, that Ray was actually Portuguese, and he was sort of making up being an Irish-American, which ended up being totally untrue. But I credit that just with the ability to put anything on the Internet. And in the void of real information about him, I think things just kind of cropped Mm. up. So I could see that he had an interesting background as a performer. I could see that he had been on Broadway and certainly in film. And he was this also kind of magnetic uh, personality. It seemed like there might be something very interesting in him that, you know, maybe didn't really resonate with me uh, in other performers, the way that something in him did. So all these kind of became part of the quest. And also, once I got underway, the amount of kind of coincidences I was uncovering kind of spurred me on and on and on to see if I could find as much as possible. And truly, it did. It was really a wonderful story of coincidences and serendipity and all that good stuff that I think we find encouraging in life. I love what you said about The Wizard of Oz because I'm right there with you as are millions, of course, but uh, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to this stuff. But being from Boston, as I am, and being uh, a a local city kid, there's that personal connection to any performer of his ilk who comes from here. And before we get into his early days, one of my favorite memories, uh, television memories in the later years was his arrival at Symphony Hall to perform with the Boston Pops and him dancing on the side of the stage. And he was in his 70s, maybe even his early 80s. He's just magnificent. So let's talk about him as a Boston kid. Where did he grow up? Yes, absolutely. So he grew up in Dorchester. He also came from a sort of fractured family, sadly. So his mother passed away when he was just 15 of a cerebral hemorrhage. His father was a very good man, but I think he 
did not really have what it took to keep the family together and kind of nuclear. That was really the role that Ray's mom had. She was very much about, you know, giving her children um, religion and a strong sort of home basis. And when she passed, they never really recovered from that. So Ray had one younger sister, and she went to live with relatives on her mom's side of the family. And then Ray was kind of going around with his dad. So they ended up in Cambridge. They actually were traveling vacuum cleaners, salespeople in Maine for a while. And Ray's father really kind of struggled with um, a steady kind of job. He wanted to try all kinds of things. He also wanted to make as much money as possible. And keep in mind, this was a very working class family. I think the other really amazing thing about this story is just when you think about where Ray started his life, which was a very poor kid running around the streets of Boston, and where he ended up, which was a very wealthy man living on what we call the flats in Beverly Hills in a wonderful mansion that he owned outright and all that. It's really kind of extraordinary. But yeah, those early years mm. in Boston were very hard to travel, but it's also where he learned his trade. And he was the first performer in his family. He was, as I go through in the book, he was really learning how to dance in Sully Square and a bunch of different areas around Boston. They would find, the kids would find people who would teach them some steps, or they would see what vaudevillians were in town, and they would be imitating those people. And so it really was this amazing education. It was totally informal. He had just a few lessons in, you know, any kind of structured dance. But he turned it into this style that was all his own, and that was really what became his trademark throughout his life. That and his Boston accent, which, you know, if you watch The Wizard of Oz and everything else, yeah. remains with him, uh, yeah. which is kind of funny. <laughs> you talk about um, his dancing, and of course, it's it's so special to him. But like Gene Kelly, he was an incredibly athletic and agile individual. You wouldn't know it by looking at him, but his stamina, I mean, really over the years was incredible. Yeah, and he just had a wonderful physique and a physicality for dance. The, uh, the ways that he was able to stay so limber, he had a, a natural degree of flexibility, but nobody can do that naturally without trying, you know. And so he was disciplined in practicing breathing, for example. He was a big believer on that. And he did get massages daily for a number of years just trying to stay limber. But I actually chose the photo I did for the cover of my book, which is Bolter in this great leap when he's rehearsing a Broadway show. This is actually him rehearsing by Jupiter in the early 1940s. And he's actually doing a pas de chat, which is a ballet move. And that's, you know, we kind of associate Kelly with being that ballet tap dancer. Um, but Ray had a little of that ballet background, too. It was enough where he could pull out uh, tricks like this, if you will, and um, make them work. But he did have a 60-year career. He really began mm. dancing. Like I said, he was born in 1904. And he was really doing this kind of in his late teens. So if you figure the early 20s. He passed away in 1987, and he was dancing until the early 80s when he had a hip replacement. Yeah. And, you know, he basically mm -hmm. did not have the range of movement he once had at that point, and he decided it was no more. But to your point, yeah, well into his 70s, when mm -hmm. I um, saw him in that piece on the Judy Garland show in the 60s, he was in his 50s doing, you know, kicks above his head still. <laughs> and that was a trick he could do into the 70s. Oh. So he was a really wonderful man. And yeah. I think it meant so much to him to live was really to dance. And it's not um, very surprising that when he couldn't have that outlet anymore, I think he really lost some of his spark for life. He still loved living, but I think a life without dance is a really difficult thing for him to work with, mm. you know. 
Holly, there are so many amazing takeaways, and we wouldn't have time to do them all from your terrific book, Ray Bolger, More Than a Scarecrow. But one of them is, and we mentioned the word several times, performer. I would put a capital P on that word when it comes to Ray Bolger, because as you point out, he's doing it all. He's acting. He's singing a bit. He's certainly dancing a lot. And he's even doing things like opening Radio City Music Hall as the MC, the Master of Ceremonies in 32. So, I mean, he was an all-purpose performer who who was a, a workhorse. That's about the best way I could sum it up. Yeah, and I think what's particularly interesting about him is that he could kind of pass, like you're saying, on the singing, the acting. He might not really have had much of a range. He was kind of playing himself a lot of the time. But he knew how to connect with an audience. And I attribute that in the book and also just when I talk about it to the fact that he was like many of these performers coming up the hard way as they used to say but he was learning his trade in coal towns in Pennsylvania which is really funny because that was where I grew up and so to see that that was really where he got his start as well was endearing but he would be in you know say the Grand Army of the Republic Hall for a town and there might be 10 people there and they were not afraid to heckle him and he knew he got to win people like that and I think that instinct stayed with him so that even when he ascended these heights, he went from, you know, vaudeville into Broadway, into film, into nightclubs, into Las Vegas. That stayed with him constantly. He was not a man who really reinvented himself. If you watch enough of his dances, even the few that we have preserved on film, you see that he essentially has maybe three or four dances. And he's able to parlay that into a variety of characters and situations. Mm. But in his time, people knew what Ray Boulder did, and that was what they wanted of him. And so you're absolutely right. He can be totally charming in these activities because I think the greatest thing that he gave his audiences, not only was he actually a proficient dancer, I mean, his tapping is very lyrical. He was, as I explained in the book, um, a prime example of a genre that in his day was called eccentric dance that now has kind of fallen by the wayside, but that was a kind of comical, very physical dance with a character line in it. Um, He did have something to offer. It wasn't that he was just making stuff up, but I think what really endeared him to people was his ability to connect and his ability to transport them somewhere else, which of course, thankfully in uh, the course of his life, he ended up in the most popular movie of all time where he certainly did that, but he was doing that on a nightly basis as well on stages. And I actually in the book that he infinitely preferred live performance for that reason. He could get the reaction. He could understand how to tailor things in a way that he felt very stilted on camera and not necessarily satisfied because he didn't have that feedback loop coming to him. To those waiting for me to bring up The Wizard of Oz, just wait a few more seconds because, I mean, it's the big it's the big scarecrow in the corner of the room. We'll get to it. But I, I think it's important to note that he's got a partner in life who is very, very important to him personally but professionally, and that's his wife, Gwen, a remarkable figure. I knew nothing about her till I read the book. She reminded me only in terms of the, the career of, like, Sylvia Fine, who helped Danny Kaye so much. But tell me about Gwen how they met and why really she's the the woman behind the throne if you will exactly so um you're correct absolutely correct Gwen was a life partner in every sense of the word that we now give it i don't think they really had that terminology back then but they were married for 58 years very happily and they were also professional partners and the most extraordinary partnership that they had perhaps professionally was that 
Gwen became the first female producer of a musical comedy on Broadway in 1948 with Ray's starring vehicle, Where's Charlie? That was the role that he went on to win the Tonys for the best actor in a musical for the year. So this was a major artistic achievement for Ray, and it would not have happened without Gwen. But even prior to that, they had been building towards this for years. So they married in 1929. Ray actually met Gwen in Los Angeles when he was passing through with a vaudeville show uh, with the empresario Gus Edwards. They had met several years before, and it was actually Gwen who approached Ray. She saw him at the show, and as the family lore goes, and it is the story that she stuck to for her life, she said, that's the man I'm going to marry. So she actually went and asked Ray for a date. At that time, um, Gus Edwards was known for a show that brought through juveniles, and he was sort of known for picking youth of great promise. So that was really where Ray came into this. He discovered a lot of different folks over the years. He discovered Walter Winchell prior to Ray Bolger, the Marx Brothers, um, Eleanor Powell. So, I mean, this man could pick talent, but at the time, these were not super big names. So he also allowed potential participants in his shows to meet him in the cities where he was backstage between performances or after performances and try out an audition. And Gwen herself actually had musical ambitions. She uh, was a wonderful piano player. She wrote music. She was singing the blues on local radio stations. And she had an interest in that world. And so that was really what they connected on. It was also what kept them apart because when they met in 26, you know, Ray had things to do and Gwen at that time was not prepared to leave town. But they reunited a couple of years later and they made this decision that they wanted to spend their lives together. But also they had this notion that one of them could be a star and one of them could be the support, but they didn't think they would both have the time and the capacity, you know, to be in a relationship with each other essentially and to both develop as stars. And so they made the decision together that Gwen would kind of become the manager. And it makes perfect sense because she had all of the skills for that. Not only did she understand the entertainment aspect, but she also understood finance. She understood investing. She understood image. You have to remember, like I said, Ray came from this kind of hard scrabble life. And Gwen was in somewhat of a different position. Her father had been um, a U.S. commissioner for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She came from a very strong line of women who had seen something of the world. They had been world travelers. And she kind of got things in a way that Ray didn't. Ray got to maintain his simplicity. And actually a quote that he said much later in the 40s or 50s was, Gwen does everything for me except dance. (laughs) So I think that was how it worked. He got to sort of focus on the purity of his craft, if you will, and really stay in that bubble. And she could handle everything from writing scripts to talking with directors to everything. And I think that was also why he loved Broadway so much, because Broadway at that time was so much more fluid. Gwen could show up. Gwen could make her comments on things. In the early days, you know, before The Wizard of Oz, Ray ended up in a number of Broadway shows by Rodgers and Hart. And of course, that was the precursor to Rodgers and Hammerstein. And she could even end up rewriting scripts. She did that a couple of times at the end. In Hollywood, it was already much more systematized. And she could not just show up on a soundstage and really be making these kinds of decisions. So I think the informal atmosphere of Broadway was really a training ground for her, which she eventually used to become a producer of Ray's most popular show, Where's Charlie? And I think she gave him something he would not have had on his own because of that instinct of, 
you know, what would appeal to people? How can we clean up your act a little bit? How can we elevate it from silly to charming? Those were all decisions that she was making. And I think it also is what fueled their partnership because not only did they find great success with it, but I feel like they were deeply invested in each other because from contemporary accounts I was able to find, there was never an opinion that Gwen put down that Ray would not respect and pick up. You know, they were not dismissive of each other. If he felt very strongly about something, she knew that as her cue to let him take the lead. If she felt very strongly, it was vice versa. He would do that for her. And so they had just this very wonderful collaboration, really, in all aspects of life. And I think because of that, Ray became as famous as he did because she could understand what would move him forward in a career, whereas he was kind of just interested in the job in front of him. Right. Okay, let's get to Oz as a Wizard of Oz file, and you are too. <laughs> uh, you would think that you, we would have uncovered all the stuff that we wanted to, but you have uncovered even more uh, behind the scenes about yeah. that. And maybe just share a few tidbits with the listeners here to this podcast about what you found, because we all know the story of Buddy Ebsen and the paint. I shouldn't say we all do, but you and I do, and people listen. <laughs> Exactly. Right. But there were some really cool things about about Ray Bolger's casting and about his relationship with Judy. Tell us a, a little bit about that whole scene. Absolutely. So as you point out, there are so many books about the Wizard of Oz. You would think you cannot draw any more water from this. And it's true. Like a lot of the details of production and all of that has been taken care of. But what I was able to find and then put forward in this book was sort of Ray's perspective on the whole thing and where that fit in his life trajectory and also the greater trajectory of where American entertainment was going. But The Wizard of Oz to me is really interesting because it's an encapsulation of this time period and this sort of vaudeville, um, not quaintness, but hominess. And I don't know that we necessarily look at it and think of it that way. But, you know, Ray Bolger came up through vaudeville and so did Jack Haley and Burt Lahr. And it just kind of became this way to memorialize, if you will, that time, that style of music, the jokiness. And the three of them knew each other prior to this film. They had worked together either on Broadway or in vaudeville. And so because the demands of the the film were so much, what they ended up doing was just cracking each other up the whole time. They were playing practical jokes. They were driving each other crazy, but that was so that the costume didn't drive them crazy (laughs) and the hot lights required for Technicolor. And so it really was, in some ways, a kind of old home reunion. It's also really interesting because I don't think any of them really predicted what this film was going to be. It was a job. And they knew it was a lot of hard work. They knew there was a lot of innovation involved because of the amount of special effects they were trying and people getting hurt in the process and all of that. But they didn't really have this, um, what would you say, these sort of assumptions about this film, the way that we do now when we approach it, because we know it's endured for so long. So they were just kind of passing through and seeing their usual selves. And Ray, being his usual self, is a very sort of childlike figure. I think it goes back a little bit to what we were saying, where because Gwen could take care of a lot of the demands of the business side of things, Ray was certainly tough. He certainly laid it all out there in his performances. He was very, very exhaustive in his performances and wanted to give the audience wonderful experiences, whether that was, you know, on stage or whether that was on a film. So he was working very hard. It was very physical. And yet he was really able to connect to Judy Garland in a way that the other cast members probably couldn't. Um, You know, Bert and Jack Haley had children of their own. Ray didn't. Ray and his wife never had children. And I think Ray saw a lot of himself in Judy Garland at that point because she was just kind of 
coming up, and obviously she achieved a stardom quite different from anything that he did, but he signed himself a child who was kind of going to be robbed of a childhood. And I think that really sparked in him the loss of his own mother and just sort of the struggles he had going through the business. Because really, once his mother passed away when he was 15, his childhood was robbed, essentially. And that was pretty much with Judy. Once she entered MGM, a lot of her traditional childhood rites of passages would be denied her, essentially. So they connected on that mm. basis. And he really treated her like a person as well. It wasn't just like, oh, she's this cute little girl. I think he took her seriously in a way that he himself wanted to be taken seriously. And so they just had this really wonderful, um, simpatico kind of relationship, whereas some of the older vaudevillians were like, oh, yeah, this kid, that's fine, you know, whatever. Well, I, I can <laughs> tell you really that scene at towards the end of the film in Oz at the balloon stand, when she turns to the scarecrow and says, I'll miss you most of all, it ju I choke up thinking about it every single solitary time. There's so much truth there in their performances. It's just so sweet. It's absolutely true. That was a reflection of where they were. And what's also kind of interesting is if you watch the, the movie enough times, which I admit I have, you know, maybe I shouldn't have seen it so many times, but um, <laughs> you, you pick up on really little subtleties that are there. So actually, if you think about this, so in the balloon scene that you're referencing right before Dorothy's supposed to go back to Kansas with the wizard, but the balloon goes away without her and they wait for Glinda. Before that happens, when they're all still around the balloon and they think that, you know, Judy and the wizard are going, or I should say Dorothy and the wizard are going back to Kansas, um, you'll see there's a long shot where the wizard in the balloon is kind of addressing the citizens of Oz in front of him. While that's happening, if you hone in on the background, it's, you know, Judy has Dorothy in this balloon, and she's ad-living with Ray, and they just look like the saddest people in the world, like they're going to be parted. And there's a really endearing moment, like blink if you miss it, but Ray just picks up Judy's hand and kisses it. Uh, and it's going on in the background. It's got nothing I have to, do with to see anything, that now. <laughs> if you watch that, it speaks to the total sincerity between their relationship. And it wasn't romantic. It was totally platonic. Yeah. But it was really just like the love between two people or two souls even who just got each other. And, you know, through the years, Ray and Judy kind of kept in touch. Ray knew he couldn't really rescue her from her problems. But he always admired her talent. And they considered her one of the greatest talents of her generation, Ray and his wife, Gwen. And so every opportunity they had to connect, they absolutely did. And when you get later in life, all the way back to that um, episode of the Judy Garland show I was referencing, you see that that reverence is still there. You know, Judy's in her 40s at that time. She's in very rough shape. And Ray himself is much older than he was at the time of, the, you know, Wizard of Oz. But that same spark of this loveliness is between them. And that totally was fostered in the crazy environment of this film being made that nobody had ever tried to make before. His political stands, he was a conservative, and even back then it was more likely you'd find liberals in Hollywood, an ardent Catholic, and uh, he managed to get by not covering up his political views. Tell us a little bit more about how he handled that and how Hollywood handled him. Absolutely. That's a wonderful question. Thank you. So you're right. Ray actually was a lifelong conservative way back to his days, uh, you know, in Boston. He has said he came from a long line of Irish Catholic Republicans. And that was always sort of evident throughout his life, except here's where it gets difficult. This is a story kind of of research, but also of Bolger's life as well. He was known for being a conservative even in his early days on Broadway. So this would have been prior to The Wizard of Oz in the 30s. And what's really interesting, and it gets recounted in the book, but um, E.Y. Harburg, who would later go on to write the um, lyrics for The Wizard of Oz, he was working with Ray on Broadway in the 30s, and Harburg was an ardent leftist, and Bolger was 
you know, very right wing even at that time. And so they would get into political discussions, arguments, what have you then. Um, but they still maintained a friendship. And I think that's what's so fascinating, because back in this time, I do feel like there was a greater respect, honestly, put on civility, that these two men could come together and have these extreme differences. And Ray actually was unable to go to Harbor's uh, funeral when he passed. He passed just a little bit before Ray. But Ray, um, on the quest of the organizer, had submitted essentially what would be a eulogy. Mm. And he recounted, you could almost feel it tearfully. He said, like, we had these terrible arguments, and yet nothing will ever replace this man from my heart, you know? And I just can't imagine that kind of conversation happening today, honestly. Mm. And Ray's own feelings at the time. It's hard. We don't have a lot of accounts of his contemporaries on Broadway when he was a younger man, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s, talking about what race politics were really like or the extent of it. The, the interlude with Harburg is really interesting there. Um, but we don't really know. But we, we do know that Ray, as an older man in his 70s, was basically saying of Broadway at the time, he said, I had to be with the party who was in. So, of course, Broadway was very liberal in the 30s and the 40s. And so he kind of towed the line more. But I think it was when he got to Hollywood in the film side, or I'm sorry, the television side of things in the early 50s, that that was sort of when he was becoming more outspoken about this. And one of the greatest sources that we have on that was actually um, Ray Bolger's dance partner, Sylvia Lewis, who was on the Ray Bolger show with him from 1952 through 1954. Um, she was 25 when Ray was 50. And she's been just a wonderful source of information about the kinds of arguments that would go down and the discussions. And so there, it was kind of the beginning. There's also a lot of great research that's been done about just kind of when the Republican element, if you will, emerged in Hollywood that, of course, helped Ronald Reagan become president and all kinds of things, one of their own. Mm -hmm. um, but really, that was as an older man, he started to feel like, oh, I could talk about this. And maybe the climate around him supported it a little bit more. He was certainly still in the minority, but it was gaining traction, if you will. And honestly, despite the fact that he was feeling freer to talk, you can almost chart the downfall of his career based on how his conservative views were becoming more apparent, but also clashing with audiences. I'll jump forward just a little bit, but you know, Ray Bolger was in Mel Brooks's first ever musical. This was called All Americans. It went on Broadway in 1962. And we do have a lot of accounts of what Ray was like in those situations. So I had the privilege of speaking extensively with two members of the cast. Um, that would have been Anita Gillette and Fritz Weaver. And they were young people at the time when Ray was older in this show. Um, but they were spoke at length about really how he made it apparent that he was a conservative and how at the curtain they would have to go and salute the flag. And, of course, this was really counter to 60s culture at the time, especially in New York. And so he was creating more friction as he got older. And I think it was that inability to connect over the friction in a performative kind of way that basically led the roles to evaporate for him on Broadway at that time. And so... It's interesting because his primary motivation, as I've been saying, is to connect with people. But I do think as he got older, he had this greater interest in the politics, and sometimes that got in the way of, of the connection with the audience. So it kind of depends on what your own politics are. I mean, his conservative fans were certainly very happy with that. But that was really when an element of dissent almost came out between him and his younger, more liberal castmates, mm -hmm. and that created quite a lot of problems for him.
certainly a multifaceted individual as well as a multifaceted performer. I think what you've done is shed some light on a character so beloved as the Scarecrow, but so interesting as Ray Bolger. He's a multifaceted individual with a 60-year-plus career and a beautiful woman behind the scenes making it happen for him. In closing, I just can't think, Holly, of anybody other than this gentleman as the Scarecrow. It's, it's kind of like Hollywood likes to redo and remake and reimagine films, but uh, God forbid if they ever try to do The Wizard of Oz again with anybody but Ray Bolger. <laughs> Absolutely. I've heard that a lot. Um, you know, I, I was just at an event in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian, and, you know, it's such a wonderful cross-section of people coming through that type of museum, and some younger folks are passing by, and they were saying, oh, well, you know, it's only... A, a matter of time they have to remake this so you know i want to be dorothy but but i thought about that yeah i don't think we do we don't have performances quite like this anymore we don't have performers quite like this and the real impetus to preserve this story was number one i do feel having gone through the research having you know read the contemporary accounts the reviews but more importantly the audience reactions and looking at this man and what he was trying to do kind of from his personal side of things not really the public facing side I do believe he has, as a dancer, he is worthy of the credit of Astaire or Kelly. In his day, he had that respect. He was right up there with them. And I also think this is a fascinating man because not only, as I mentioned, where he started and where he ended were so totally different, but in between, he just happened to be at the center of so many important milestones in American entertainment, particularly, of course, in the 20th century where he lived. But he was on the first ever television broadcast. He was the master of ceremonies at Radio City. He was on the very first USO tour to Puerto Rico, and he later went on the very first tour to the South Pacific. He ended up, you know, almost by chance in the most popular movie of all time by a lot of estimates. And it's just amazing that one person can kind of become the through line through so many different changes. And he might not have realized that in his life, but that's certainly what ended up happening. So not only do we get to honor him as an individual, but we get to see the way things change based on the way his career changed and the way the world that he was living in changed. Mm. Well, Holly Van Leuven, you've taken your own trip to the Emerald City to uncover this. What a trip on the yellow brick road it's been to bring us Ray Bolger more than a scarecrow. We appreciate it, and uh, we love him even more because of it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jordan. It's my honor. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.